Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Good morning again, everybody. My name's Eric, the pastor here at Trinity. We are currently in a sermon series on what is probably the most famous sermon of all time, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we're calling it Flourish, because in this sermon, Jesus gives us His vision for what it means for us to flourish as people. And so we're going to be taking about 12 or 13 weeks to go through this sermon together. Jesus is preaching this Sermon on the Mount, letting us know that we were meant to flourish, that we were not meant to just get by, not just settle, but that He's come to invite us into this life of flourishing. And it's not just for ourselves and about ourselves, but this sermon is about how we become people who flourish, not just for ourselves, but people who bring flourishing and good into the world. So we've looked at the Beatitudes, which is the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, we looked at Introduction Part 2, where Jesus tells His followers, you are supposed to be light and salt for the world. That when you live in the Beatitudes, this blessed life that is very unexpected, very un upside down, that people who live this way actually become a force. They become the world's greatest impact for good, and that is how God has intended it to be. So before I get into the passage that we just read, we need to see how it functions in the Sermon on the Mount. We've got the Beatitudes, we've got salt and light, that's kind of a two-part introduction, but Jesus says, before I get into the specifics, anger, worry, sexuality, these kinds of things, he says, first, I have one more thing, a preface, where I'm going to give you my, my thesis statement, the thesis statement for this entire sermon. And the way he's setting this up, he's saying, I have some pretty radical, some pretty real, some pretty raw things that I need to tell you in this sermon, things that your other teachers and leaders are not telling you or saying to you. My answers to the question of what does it mean to flourish, they're not going to be the answers that you're hearing, either from your religious leaders or your cultural leaders. They're not the popular answers. So I'm going to challenge both the prevailing religious mindset and the prevailing cultural mindset, but what I'm here and about to say to you is not something new, but I'm here to recover what God has been trying to tell you all along through His Word. I'm here to recover for you the true and full purpose of the whole Bible. So his thesis statement is really here in 5 verse 17, if you look at 17. When I was in high school, I took um, AP Ameri uh, European history, 
And this teacher that I had, he drilled into us, if you want to pass the AP test, you have to learn how to write a thesis statement. And he would actually give us an A, even if we had an unfinished essay, if our thesis statement was like rock solid, he would be like A, A, A. He would just drill it all year long, thesis statement, thesis statement, thesis statement. It's got to be clear and it's got to make sense. So here we have Jesus' thesis statement for the entire Sermon on the Mount. In verse 17, and the way that I would paraphrase what he's saying there is he's saying the entire Bible, the whole Bible without exception, is the final authority and the necessary guide to all human flourishing. It's one of the major points that I want to share this morning. The whole Bible, without exception, is the necessary guide and the final authority to all human flourishing. So there's many ways that I said we could slap a title on the Bible, but another title we could give it is, The Bible Was Written So We Could Flourish, The Book of Human Flourishing. Jesus' second main point of his thesis statement is that this is why he came. He came to bring into our lives the full reality of the purpose of the Bible, so that in doing it, we would flourish and bring flourishing to other people. So these two things, the authority of the whole Bible and doing everything it says, were two things Jesus thought needed to be recovered in his day, which was a very different time, a very different day. But in Jesus' day, he said there were all, there's all kinds of misunderstandings about what the Bible is and why the whole thing is necessary for our human flourishing. Now, we live in a very different time than Jesus But attitudes and perspectives on the Bible uh, vary in our culture as well. I wanted to share with you an infographic statistic that I found from the American Bible Society and Barna Research Group. So they've done some research. This is from the 2016 um, State of the Bible Survey. I don't know if you can see all those numbers, but I'll just summarize some of what they found. And what they did in 2016, they started doing this survey in 2000, and six years into it, Barna decided to do some analysis and say, what are the trends that we're seeing over the past six years of this survey? One of the things they found here showing on this graph is that 66%, two-thirds, of Americans have some doubts about the whole Bible. Parts of it, maybe, but not everything. David Kinneman, who did the the synthesis and analysis, said, the data is trending towards Bible skepticism. With each passing year, the percent of Americans who believe that the Bible is just another book written by men increases. So as you look at that and these different categories about our views on the Bible, I realize we're in very different places, all of us, even in this room this morning. Some of you may feel like, yeah, I'm a part of that 66%. I have some respect for the Bible, I have some interest in the Bible, and I believe parts of it are really important. But the whole thing, the whole Bible, I'm not sure. I have some reservations about that. Some of you are exploring Christianity and you feel like you're somewhat agnostic about the Bible. How do we approach it? Do we need every part? How does Jesus fit in? to the whole. Others of you are firm in the other 33%, the one-third, but for you, the Bible has become lifeless. 
You say, I agree. The whole Bible is necessary. This is what we need. This is God's Word. It is true. But the impact that it has on our lives is little. And it brings little of that flourishing into our lives that is promised. And so though you have that theology, you wonder why it's not hitting you in your experience. Jesus' words address all of us in all those places. As he says, the whole Bible is necessary for our flourishing, and this is what he came to bring into our lives. So we're going to be walking through this passage. We're going to be looking at four points together. I'll give them to you one at a time. First, the whole Bible, Jesus says, it's all or nothing. The whole Bible, all or nothing. What, what does it mean that we need the whole Bible to truly flourish as people? Well, if you look at what Jesus has to say, he says it means we don't just need the parts we like. It means we don't just need the parts we already agree with, the parts we're comfortable with. We need everything. And more than that, Jesus is saying it's all or nothing. If you take some of it away, you lose the whole thing and you lose its power. Look at verse 17. He says, the law and the prophets. Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Law and the prophets, that's shorthand for everything that was contained in God's written revelation. So Jesus' whole Bible at the time was what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. As we go through this sermon this morning, I'm going to be speaking about the Old Testament, and by extension and application, I'm going to be including the whole Bible, Old and New Testament. But Jesus says, I have not come to revise the Scriptures. I have not come to reject or replace anything that was written in the Scriptures, but to reclaim and recover everything that is in there. And even more than that, to fulfill it, not to just restate it, but to bring the whole and every single part to its full completion and goal. So in saying this, Jesus rules out selective obedience and acceptance. And verse 18 explains this further. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota or dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. What is an iota and a dot? An iota is probably referring to the Hebrew letter yod. It's like a little apostrophe. Just a tiny little mark. And the dot, that probably refers either to the breathing marks in Hebrew writing, which are the vowel points, or to the little curves on the letters, like serif and sans serif font, the little serifs. The little curve on a T. He's saying even to the smallest punctuation mark in detail. It can't be ignored. Jesus is saying we can't cut and paste to create our own versions of the Bible. We can't selectively choose which parts to obey and to accept. So for my Christian friends here, this means for us two things, that our whole lives need to be shaped by the Bible, and we need the whole Bible to shape our lives. Selective obedience, acceptance is not an option for us. Every part of our ethical lives in practice, every part of our viewpoint of what is right and wrong, a Christian needs to be able to say, at bottom, at a foundational level, I hold to this view, I seek to live it out because this is my very best understanding of what the Scriptures teach, about how to live, about what is best for human flourishing. 
to do that, to answer those questions, Jesus says we need the whole Bible. And I know you're thinking, I have a lot of questions about that statement. What about all the dietary laws in the Old Testament? What about all the sacrificial system and all the rules and regulations related to that? And not only that, what about the parts that just seem outdated? What about the parts that seem antiquated and even the parts that seem offensive to our modern culture? There's a lot that's unclear. There's a lot that I don't like. Can I just ignore those parts? Can I skip over those parts? Those are big questions. We can't answer and dig into all of those, but this passage provides us with a starting point if we have those kinds of questions. Because often people say, who are Christians, who are struggling with this or exploring Christianity, I'm not sure about all the Bible, but Jesus, I like Him. Jesus, I will take. He's the best part. I'll accept and obey Him and His teachings. But the problem with this is that Jesus' own view of the Bible was that it was an all-or-nothing deal. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, when we get there, it's in chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, the overriding impression that the Sermon on the Mount had on people, Matthew tells us the impression and the effect it had. He says, when Jesus finished saying these things and teaching, his sermon was done, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. My point is this, when we're having a really hard time with what's in the Bible, accepting it, disagreeing with it, obeying it, we need to start by taking it on Jesus' authority, that it is there because it is good for us, even when it's really hard, even when we don't understand it, even when we can't see it. Because at the end of the day, we have two choices when it comes to the Bible. Do we filter through the Bible picking and choosing what we will accept and allow? Or do we allow the Bible to filter through us, to tell us what it will accept and allow? Tim Keller says about this, either the Bible is an authority over you or you are an authority over it. If there's anything you dislike about it, it means you've put yourself in a position to judge any verse. And so your filter ends up being your real Bible, and you end up being your final authority. I think in our culture, we're seeing attention around the question of authority. We're seeing attention around this idea that every single person has the right to be their own authority to decide what's right, to decide what's good, to filter out what they believe is best for them. And that's pretty much how we operate and believe. But now, what's being played out in this conversation that we've talked about here a number of times regarding living in this post-truth era, we've seen it in politics, but it's also a part of the surrounding conversation in many other areas in our culture. With this post-truth climate, I think we're seeing a hunger. We're seeing a desire for something more than just, we all get to be our final filter and authority. One way that this came up recently, I didn't see the Academy Awards, the Academy Awards, I believe, where the New York Times ran an ad uh, during the award show. And so whatever you think about 
the New York Times and their relationship to our current president, the ad that they displayed was pretty provocative. It had all the, it had, it was just simple words. I don't know if anybody saw it. If I can get some nods or hands. Did anybody see that New York Times ad? A couple of people saw it. It said, the truth is, and then all these things kept popping up to fill in the blank. The truth is, had all these different politically charged statements on both sides um, of the, of the, um, of the, you know, the issue. But at the very end, what popped up got my attention. It said the truth is hard. It said the truth is hard to find. It said the truth is hard to know. The truth is more important than ever. Jesus would agree with that, and he would force the issue and say, well, how do we know the truth? If we are our own final authorities, we're stuck in the post-truth world. But the truth is always more important to discover and to know. And Jesus says, it's found in the whole Bible. That's my first point. Second point, in order to experience the flourishing the Bible was meant to bring to us and through us, we need the whole Bible, not a relaxed Bible. Jesus says in verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You can't even relax just one. That is very challenging. It's very challenging to me personally because one of my favorite words in the English language is relax. I love the word relax. Sometimes when Amelia and I are at the end of the day, and there's plenty of things for us to do on our to-do list. We could do all kinds of different things, but sometimes she'll ask me, do you want to just relax, like kick back and watch TV or whatever? And I've never said no (laughs) when she has asked me that question, like relax, yes. And that's what we love to do in Southern California. We like our relaxation. It's part of the reason we live in Orange County, right? We don't live in L.A., it's too busy, too much traffic, too hectic. We don't live in San Francisco, we've moved away from New York City. We're in Orange County, because we want to relax, not be so uptight about everything. When Jesus says, when it comes to the Bible, we can't relax. There are two main ways that we relax the Bible. There is um, the building of fences around the Bible, that's the one way that we relax it, and there is the way that we relax it where we divide the Bible into pieces draw lines through it. Let me explain. Building fences around the Bible is the religious approach to the Bible. The religious approach to the Bible says, if I'm only, I'm only accepted if I obey it all. I'm only accepted if I obey it all. Jesus is saying here that this approach to the Bible, though it sounds like it's an intense approach, is actually a relaxing of the Bible. This is how the religious leaders of the day approached the Scriptures. And what the Pharisees did, what the scribes did at the time, is what always happens when we take this approach to the Bible, this religious approach. They built what they called fences around the Bible and the law. So what they did was they went through the entire Bible and they said, this is serious, we got to obey it, so let's count up all the commands. There's 613, 365 negative, 248 positive. That's a lot. It's a lot to keep track of. That's a lot to figure out how to obey every single day. So what we need to do is help people do that and help ourselves do that. We're going to create fences 
which were checklists and to-do lists to keep us far away from breaking those commandments that are inside the fence. So they created all these other human traditions and rules around the Word and the law. It says, as long as you stay on the outside of the fence, then you are good. And this is how it looked. As long as you just avoid the physical act of adultery, check, you're on the right side of the fence. When you're swearing by something, when you're trying to prove that you're true, just don't swear by the temple, then you're good, check. How many, how many minutes do I need to pray and read my Bible and not feel guilty? This is a modern-day checklist question for us. 30 minutes a day, check. 15 minutes a day, check. The Pharisees asked, how do I, how do I approach the issue of, of sexual purity? Is it just about the act of adultery? Or does it have anything to do with what's going on inside the heart? Do you see how that can be relaxing? Because if you are on the right side of the fence, then you're done. Then you can relax and you can say, I'm good. This misses the entire point of the entire Bible. Jesus says, you need to have a righteousness that surpasses that. The Pharisees had turned righteousness into a checklist, into a to-do list. And by doing so, they created more and more distance between themselves and the heart of the Bible itself and God. Can you imagine this fence approach being applied to our marriages? Imagine your spouse and you say, okay, I want to do a good job. Just give me a checklist. Show me the fence. Okay, you want me to tell you I love you more often. How many times? Okay, 10 times a day. Yes. Okay, next, um, you want me to listen attentively more. How many minutes? Okay, 20 minutes a day. Okay, I think I can do that. Help with the laundry, help around the house, be more supportive. Just give me the checklist and I'll check it off. Then I can just finally relax. Well, as you hear that, that's not going to create a closeness in the relationship. That's actually going to create more distance. And that's the building fence approach. That's the religious approach. Miss the whole point of the Bible and get farther and farther away from God. The other approach I'll call the anti-religious approach or the dividing line approach to the Bible. This approach says, I'm already accepted as I am, so I don't have to obey at all. Just relax. What's the big deal about everybody? This is a common view for those uh, who approach the Bible in this way, is to divide the Bible into two. Jesus, he's the nice part of the Bible. The Old Testament, I don't know about that. Jesus is about acceptance and forgiveness and grace, but the Old Testament is about judgment and violence, and I need to divide a line between the two. The problem with this view is Jesus can't be separated from the God of the Old Testament. He is one and the same, and even more than that. Most of the people who want Jesus and not the Old Testament would say the part of Jesus they like the best is actually the Sermon on the Mount. It has his ethical teachings. It talks about anger and worry. Very helpful, very practical stuff. The golden rule. I'll take that. But right here in the Sermon on the Mount, in its very thesis statement, Jesus says, if you want me and to live this sermon, if you want the power that this sermon is meant to bring into your life, 
then you have to have the Old Testament. You have to have it all. Only when you have the whole Bible and you surpass the most religious people you know can you even enter the kingdom of heaven. C.S. Lewis has a quote that I think brings this point home strong. I want to share with you. He says this, as for caring for the Sermon on the Mount, he was in a dialogue about somebody who said, I prefer what Paul says to Jesus says and dividing up the Bible like that. He says, as for caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? That's an intense picture. I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. So Jesus says, this sermon isn't about relaxing, bringing you tranquil pleasure. And this sermon is about bringing you flourishing. So if the sledgehammer comes down on the religious, if the sledgehammer comes down on the anti-religious, then how do we read this and experience this as flourishing without being sledgehammered? Well, thankfully, there is another approach. It's the approach that Jesus takes. And the approach is this. Since I am already accepted by grace, then I will obey wholeheartedly and fully. How do we see that in this passage? Which takes me to my third point. The whole Bible alone is not enough. If I were to conclude this sermon and say my main point in this, the whole Bible is important, so what we need is more exposure and more effort. You need to read it more, and you need to try harder to do everything that it says. If that was the main point of my conclusion in this sermon, then I would be setting you up for failure and a burdened and joyless faith. And I would not be communicating what Jesus is saying here. The lesson of the Pharisees and the scribes is that exposure plus effort is not enough. And to feel the force of this, we have to remember what it meant to be a scribe or a Pharisee at the time. These scribes were trained from a very young age, like kindergarten, first grade age, and they didn't receive their ordination to be a scribe until they were 40 years old. This is how much they knew the Bible. This is how much effort they put into teaching it, to understanding it, and to following it. Jesus says to the crowd and His disciples, your righteousness has to surpass and exceed theirs. And everybody was thinking, that's impossible. How could that even be? I thought Jesus came to bring grace, not the law. And Jesus says, it is possible. Because we don't need a relaxed Bible in order to obey. We need a fulfilled Bible. Back to verse 17. I didn't come to abolish, he says. I came to fulfill. I didn't come to enforce the whole Bible on you, but to fulfill the whole Bible for you, to bring into full reality in my life first and then in your life all that it says. The word fulfill might be the most important word in the Gospel of Matthew. Nineteen times it's used. It means that the story of the Old Testament has reached its conclusion. The promises have been kept. That which was picture is now reality. The container is now filled up to the full. 
The Bible alone isn't enough to change us, to enable us to do what it says, to become righteous. That's why Jesus came. The Apostle Paul, in Romans 3, he talks about how the law and the prophets were pointing forward to this all along, that they were not enough. In Romans 3, here's what it says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Jesus fulfilled the Scriptures for us. The whole New Testament, it explains how this is and how this happened. But to summarize it, I want to share three ways that Jesus fulfilled the Scriptures for us. First, by living them perfectly for us, by showing the beauty of a life completely submitted and wholeheartedly following everything that the Bible says. His righteousness, He lived for us on our behalf. And by dying for our failure, by taking the judgment for all of our unrighteousness, all the ways we fail, all the ways we fall short, Jesus died in our place. And thirdly, by enabling us and empowering us to live with a surpassing righteousness. That surpassing righteousness is not talking so much about quantity. Let me add up my righteousness and compare it to yours, but about quality. There's a story, you may have heard it, a story of a parent with their child in church, and the child is misbehaving in the pew. They're standing up, and they're getting up, and they're just standing on the pew while the service is going on. Sit down. You need to sit down. Over and over, the parent is, is telling their child, you need to sit down. Finally, after the fifth time, their child sits down in the pew, and the parent's like, yeah, that's right. You know who's boss. Okay, we accomplished it. But then they look over and the child's smiling. No smirk on the face. He's like, why are you smiling? I'm still standing up on the inside. (laughs) The surpassing righteousness that Jesus came to give us is a righteousness that comes from the inside out, from a changed heart, by seeing how much we've been loved, by seeing how much it cost for us to be accepted. So a fulfilled law, as one scholar said it, is no longer like a threatening hammer, a sledgehammer over us. It is now under us like an honoring red carpet. It's the invitation to live the flourishing life, the life that God has intended us to live. In conclusion, final thoughts, the whole Bible, learning and doing what it says, some practical applications for us. We go back to the thesis statement. Jesus said, the entire Bible, without exception, is the final authority and necessary guide to all human flourishing. The Bible was written so we could flourish. And Jesus came to bring this full reality. He lived it in His life, and He came to bring it in ours. A few thoughts on application here. First, we need to read the Bible for small beginnings and with serious purpose. See if we can get, there it is, for small beginnings and with serious purpose. The Heidelberg Catechism, an ancient catechism that was written in Q&A format to describe some of the key points of Christian theology and Christian living, 
in its 114th question, it says this about our obedience. I want to share that with you. It asks the question, can those converted to God obey these commandments perfectly? There it is. Answer, no. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some of God's commandments. I think that's a beautiful balance. We don't put the pressure upon ourselves of having it all together, of having to do all 613 commandments in the Bible, but we rejoice in small beginnings of righteousness. We don't relax. We can rest in what Jesus has done for us. But with seriousness of purpose, we seek that the whole Bible would shape our lives. So that's the first application for small beginnings and serious purpose. Secondly, we read the Bible with conviction and humility. Because there's so many things in the Bible that there are disagreements on, some of you are like, well, how do I know what to live out, what to apply, what to pursue with conviction? We need to hold to this balance of conviction and humility. Let me explain what I mean by that. Though we hold to the final and full authority of the Bible, and Jesus held to this, the reality is we don't always have the perfect and right understanding of what the Bible says. So, it means that, according to my views of what the Bible teaches, I might be wrong about what I think the Bible says. It also means others might be wrong about what they think the Bible says. It also means that we all might be wrong about what the Bible says, but the Bible itself is never wrong. We have to hold firmly to that final conclusion. The Bible's true. It's never wrong. I might be wrong. You might be wrong. We all might be wrong, and we're learning, and we're growing. Because we are incomplete, and our understanding doesn't mean we loosen our conviction on the truth of the Bible. Third and last, read the Bible in community and for transformation. Often we approach the Bible for a little bit of inspiration. Often we approach the Bible to learn new information, but the Bible is meant to be engaged for our transformation. I quoted Eugene Peterson earlier in his book on reading Scripture. He says, the most important question we ask of any passage is not what does this mean, but what can I obey? Not what does this mean, but what can I obey? So we read it submissively, we read it humbly, we also need to read it in community. And a final plug here, at Trinity, we have a tool for reading the Bible in community. We call it community Bible reading. We read through the same passage of Scripture together as a community. We do it prayerfully. We do it together because we need help in understanding what it says. We need accountability in not just reading it for information and inspiration, but for our lives being transformed. We need to have a consistent pattern of reading the Bible, the whole Bible, in our lives, or else we just gravitate to our favorite parts, the parts that are comfortable, the parts that are cozy for us. And so here we're committed to reading the whole Bible together in community. So if you're doing it, I encourage you to keep going. I need that encouragement myself. And if you'd like to join us 
You come see me after. We have a journal. We have a tool that we can give to you for that. The entire Bible. God has given it to us for our flourishing. And Jesus says, this is why I came, to fill you up with the flourishing that is found in all the Scriptures. May we experience that. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are speaking, God. You have spoken to us in your word. You have shown us yourself, and you have revealed to us what it looks like for us to truly flourish. Often when we read your word, we are confused, we are challenged, we struggle. In those moments, I pray you would meet us. Help us to hold on to the truth of your scriptures even when we don't understand or don't agree. And more than that, Lord, I pray that as we read your word, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, meet us. Whether we're listening in the car, whether we're thinking about it in our minds, whether we're sitting in our house and the Bible is open to us, would you meet us in those moments? Would you bring freshness? Would you bring it to life? Would you bring it to fullness in our lives? May we be people who are growing in righteousness. May we be people who reflect the beauty, the glory of the life that you call us to live. Conform us more and more to be like Jesus, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.